0: This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. Was E.T. responsible for the video game crash of the 1980s? No need to phone home. We've got the answer right here.
1: Once again, it's time for the 80s. In objective defense of the 80s, from a Couple of Idiots.
0: Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture from a couple of idiots. My name is Will, and joining me as always is my friend and my co-host,
1: Ray. Here I, we go again. Yes, that's a great song. <laughs> Was it David Coverdale's birthday that, that just came up? No. Huh, no, the White Snake and David Coverdale were on the cover of Circus Magazine a couple days ago back in like uh, 88 '88 or 89, I believe.
0: Yeah, and what I thought was interesting in reading that story is folks might not realize is that that song became a huge hit in 87, I think it was, 87, 88. But they had recorded it in 82 Mm -hmm. on a prior album and then redid it for the album that, you know, rose to fame that we knew as kids growing up because I hadn't heard of them before that.
1: Well, I had, but that was their big break was that song. Yeah. And putting
0: Tawny Kitaen in the videos, you know, just add that extra uh, oomph, I yeah, guess. Th-
1: that's a that's a great video.
0: Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. We were all fans. I was fans of Tawny Catain and I guess Cars. You know, maybe I was tricked into that. Anyway, today, what we're really going to be talking about is. E.T., the extraterrestrial, uh, the video game for the Atari 2600 console, and whether or not it had something to do with the great video game crash of the early 1980s, and uh, flip side, uh, whether it had something to do with the rise of the video game uh, industry in the latter part of the decade. And then, a little bit later, we'll be speaking with Bex of the YouTube and Twitch channels, Trista Bytes. Uh, Bex is a retro gaming connoisseur, an aficionado, and uh, we're going to chat to her more about retro video games. But before all that, let's talk about Ease News. So, uh, anyway, speaking of video games, uh, our friend uh, Brett Weiss, and you can find uh, Brett... Who is a retro gamer himself and reviews a number of uh, retro video games and all things tangential to retro video games? You can find him on YouTube uh, as Brett Weiss, and you can find him on Twitter Brett Weiss C H V G. So he was giving away a copy of his book, and he's written you know many books about many different subjects. But um, uh, the 80s actually won this copy of Brett's book, "The Hundred Greatest Console Video Games 1977 uh, through 1987," and this thing is awesome. So I just wanted to plug that. Um, we won it, so uh, hmm. I guess we're not receiving any uh, remuneration or compensation uh, for, for advertising this for Brett, but um, it's awesome because not only does it have great images of these video games that we love during that uh, 10-year period, but also has uh, information about the game, about every single game, every single of the 100 games is, is detailed. How they've developed, the sort of play style, what makes them great, what makes them you know make the list, and I should also mention that uh, Brett uh, this week, if you uh, tune over to Brett's uh, YouTube channel, like I mentioned, it's Brett Weiss W E I S S, uh, you'll find he did a he does a video this week. On a different angle of the uh, great video game crash, he just reviews a number of different consoles that he had great expectations for in the 1980s, uh, leading up to, uh, with much anticipation, a new system from Intellivision that's uh, coming out uh, later this year, which we'll we'll talk about some point uh, down the line. Anyway, so there's that. In other 80s news, and you're going to see a trend here in the 80s news today, uh, Ray, and I don't know if you Mm. saw this, but it has been announced... That Atari, the video game pioneers, they plan to open eight hotels. I'm going to show you an image of it if you haven't seen. Yeah, uh, yeah I saw the images. So in the uh, you know, visualization of what they're intended to look like, it looks like the Atari symbol. Sort of, uh, It is the Atari symbol, rather, on the outside yeah. of the hotel. And they talk about these hotels as if they're going to create an experience for the gamer, you know, where you're going to be able to eat, sleep, and play. You know essentially, without leaving the
1: uh, four walls of your hotel, I guess mm-hmm. <laughs> is that a vacation? Sounds kind of cool, but I came up with a great idea for the exterior of their building, okay Video message boards okay so from a distance, it looks like yep. the entire hotel is a giant game of Donkey Kong going on on the side of the building. <laughs> well, how does oh I see yeah, oh, yeah, yeah okay so from a distance it's like. There's, there's the
0: place we need to go. From a distance. You know, it'd be cool, too, if, like, you're one of the, one of the people in the hotel. Like, maybe one room or randomly, you don't know, but you're controlling the game yeah. from your room that happens to be on the outside of the yeah. hotel. Yeah, see? That would be totally cool. So, if you really stink at it, it would well, either way, it's a great advertisement. Yep. Yeah, they, they, they say that they uh, hope to create an entire ecosystem for, for gamers. Um, the, the, the size of the hotels are going to vary by the regions, but the first one is set to be constructed in Phoenix, and that will begin uh, this fall and is expected to be completed within 18 to 24 months. Other uh, locations for one are in uh, Vegas, Denver, Chicago, Austin, Texas, Seattle, San Francisco, and San Jose. None near us, but, um, you know, again, so I guess the idea is you love video games, so you'll go and stay at a place that's dedicated to
1: video games? I feel like I could do that from my house. Yeah, but I'm assuming they're going to have a lot of cool, like, stuff. Yeah. I guess. I
0: suppose, yeah.
1: I, I don't know. That's a We've got... Very little detail so far. Yes. So.
0: Road trip. Okay. In other 80s news, uh, and that story I got out of the New York Times, and I'm getting this one from the New York Times, too, as well. This headline is, Collectors Are Spending Thousands on Video Games They Will Never Play. <laughs> 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 this reminds me of your question to uh, Chris Foreman about his toys. Yeah. Because this article goes on to talk about how there's been an, a, a surge in the value and price of sealed, you know, retro-sealed video games um, in the market, uh, you know, it's been sort of going up and down lately, but, um, according to this article, you know, in very recent, uh, very recently, it's, it's been astronomical. And they give some, some examples in here. Um, they mentioned one collector named Donald Brock, who runs a website called Columbia comics. He said he spent about $50,000 buying vintage video games. Uh, and he had one sealed NES game that cost him nearly 1500. And once he had it graded, he sold it for, for more than $12,000. Wow. You know, m- much like any market, this is, you know, a bubble that's probably not sustainable and will eventually pop. This is not without uh, controversy, though, because there's the organization that's sort of, you know, taking control of grading these and uh, valuing them in, in the form of publications and also grading the cartridges that are sent to them, boxes that are sent to them, is called WATA, W-A-T-A. Um, recently, they had... Um, There was a sale, uh, an organization uh, named Heritage uh, brokered a a private sale, a $100,000 private sale of a Super Mario Brothers game last February. Um, It called it the only known copy with a sticker seal intact. Um, They said that WADA had given the game a grade of 9.4 out of 10, which is near mint, Mm. right? But the sale raised ethical questions because it turns out that... um, uh, and this came out because of a bunch of online collectors started complaining in forums that two of the five buyers are personally invested in WADA, the game that's grading, uh, the company, rather, that I said, is is grading and, you know, valuing these things, so.
1: Yeah, that's like insider trading stuff.
0: Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. And, and now, uh, I guess for their part, um, Dennis Kahn, the president of WADA, said that uh, transparency was paramount to the company and that um, employees of the company are not allowed to have their games graded by the company or to sell those that were graded, but... There seems to be some holes, um, and, and, and sort, you know, and it seems, in the very least, this company Wada stands to to, to benefit, um, uh, you know, in those types of situations. And I think that was '80s news. Yeah, you said you only had two topics today. Okay, so. yeah, uh, yeah, in Brett's book. Okay, and that was '80s news. Dun 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 dun. Okay, Ack. Okay. So, um, so, I want to lead you out of the studio. If you uh-huh. saw I have uh-huh. the, yeah, I saw a bunch of of, up
1: there, a bunch of nonsense see, out the, there.
0: So I have uh, our Atari twenty six hundred right now has. E.T., the extraterrestrial in it, and I'm asking Ray to try. Have you ever played this game before?
1: I've played this game a lot.
0: You have? Yeah. Okay. All right, now Ray's just fallen in a pit. gonna see how he navigates getting out of here. Do you remember? You have to raise your neck and do your magical E.T. powers. Oh, there you go. Okay, now get out of that pit
1: there. Let's see. He's rising. Yeah, you had to be directly under the arrow to do that.
0: So you know a trick for getting out of the pit. Because as you know, right, do you know the biggest complaint of this game was? Yeah, getting stuck in the pit.
1: Yeah. Being able to get out.
0: Yeah, so th- there was a f- sort of... It seemed like a flaw in the design here that y- you could easily fall in these pits or you had to go in these pits in order to be able to um, get the pieces you need to build E.T.'s uh, phone to be able to phone home. Oh, he fell in another pit. Let's see. All right. Is this trick going to work every time? Yes. Oh, no, he failed. That time he failed. I wonder if it's the shape of the... This one pit seems to be shaped differently.
1: Uh, I'll get out.
0: <laughs> All right. Now, this is what... This is what the... Uh, <laughs> Uh-oh. Okay, three times now he's falling right back into the pit. Four times.
1: I don't... I can do it from the edge here. There we go.
0: All right, you did it. So what was your trick there? The edge of what?
1: Underneath the edge of... I kept scooching over a little bit at a time until I found a spot I could get out.
0: Oh, okay. I didn't... All right, so you're oh, back into another pit again. All right, so now he's rising out of the pit again. Let's see, and... Oh.
1: Whoops.
0: Back into another pit. I should note, of the pits you've fallen into so far, you haven't found a single piece of, the, uh, of any of the parts you need to build your uh, communicator to phone home. I have not. But he's being chased by medical people and uh, FBI agents every now and then, and a doctor just scared him into another pit. <laughs> he's trying to rise out of it. He's lifted his neck up. The magic is happening, and... Oh, he remembered to hold it down there. All right, so you've got a couple of... Tri- oh, here comes an FBI agent. He's moving real quickly. I think I have this on expert setting. I think that's why everybody's going real fast. Because, you know, you're an adult with experience playing. That doctor's definitely going to get you. He got you. Yeah, this is hard. So um, in order to be able to get out of the pits, you have to... Uh, and, and, and any movement costs you energy or, or points. When you run out of energy or points, when it goes to zero, the game's over. You die. E.T. dies. Well, back into another pit. But he has a chance to make a flower come alive. Which I did. Now he's trying to ride it out of the pit. His neck is... He's just kind of floating a foot over the ground. <laughs> All right. He. Oh, I thought he was going to go right to another pit. All right. I don't think you're going to finish the game, but oh, and into another pit. All right. That sort of made the point right there, I suppose. Let's go back into the
1: rumpus room. So you're a lot better at that game than I remember being. Yeah, we had that at my grandma's house. We spent a lot of time with that one and adventure. And how did you know? How did you know that uh, trick for navigating out of the, the pit? We got in the pits a lot. So yeah. we just kept sitting there doing it over and over again because we'd be there on like a Saturday morning or something, and just sit there and do it over and over again. So it's just trial and error that you realize that yeah. uh, that arrow trick. Yeah, yeah.
0: Now even the arrow trick though wasn't uh,
1: you know uh, well until you remember to with... hold the button. Yeah, you got to remember to hold that button in. Right.
0: So I had to play that game because I wanted to tell the uh, the story about the uh, quote unquote worst game in Atari two thousand six hundred history, if not all video game history. E.T. the extraterrestrial, and it's it's not only is it maligned as a a bad game because um, well I shouldn't say maybe it may deserve some of the criticism it has as a, as a bad game because of some of the playability issues like that getting stuck in the pit I guess that's the main thing yeah if you didn't have that problem it'd probably be, it would be a lot easier less frustrating um, but also because or I say it's maligned so maybe it deserves that criticism but it's maligned because it's uh, held responsible by many folks for being the game that brought down the entire video game industry early in the 1980s.
1: Yeah, that's uh the story goes, the graveyard with the E.T. Right. The e.
0: right, yes. The long, uh, what was once just an urban legend was that um, after the failure of E.T., uh, Atari buried uh, many, many, many thousands of copies of uh, the copy of, of E.T. in a landfill in Alamogordo, New Mexico. That was since... Uh, unearthed in 2014. The game was actually created by a guy named Howard Warshaw. Warshaw wasn't a computer guy. He didn't start out as a computer guy. Um, When he went to school, he was actually interested in uh, economics, but he got interested in uh, video games when he was a teenager in the 70s, you know, seeing consoles first reach the house, you know, homes, you know, when you had Atari's Pong and and, uh, Odyssey. You mentioned the first console you had was the 2600? Yeah. Yeah, I mentioned before. We had the Odyssey. Um, I don't know how we afforded it. I think I realize now we probably got it a few years after it was out. So we maybe we got it used or, you know, at a pawn shop or something because mm-hmm. uh, we didn't have a whole lot of money. Um, it, it, so he went to first, we're studying, uh, he was introduced to computers as while well, he was studying economics in Tulane University. But he fell in love with the idea of studying uh, computers because he says that uh, he realized he didn't have to, it didn't require him to write papers. <laughs> so he went on to earn a master's degree in engineering and then was working at Hewlett Packard. He got really bored at Hewlett Packard, uh, and so someone suggested he apply to be at Atari. And ultimately, he he was uh, he got a job there, even though he had to take a significant pay cut. He thought the culture was a lot more interesting. And during his time there at Atari, he created. Um, uh, among the many things he worked on, he created what's regarded as the best game in Atari history. Do you hmm. have a guess as to what that could be? I would never have guessed this game. You may never even have heard of it.
1: Uh man, that's a tough. That's a tough one because you got Frogger and you got yeah. stuff like that. So you, you got yes. uh, asteroids is on there too. I think you're right.
0: So early on Atari, a lot of the. Uh, Success of Atari was just what they say porting porting games from the arcades mm-hmm. to the homes. So right. you had your Pong, your Space Invaders, those types of games. But as they grew and hired uh, folks like Warshaw, they wanted to create new video games. So the the,
1: the video, if yeah. I was going to take a wild guess, yeah. I'm going to go with River Raid. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good guess. Yeah, I like that game. It wasn't River Raid. Um, that was actually an
0: Activision game. I'm pretty sure. And Activision, as you know, was was uh, former Atari employees. But uh, Warshaw created Yars' Revenge.
1: Oh, yeah, I remember that. Which I had, and I thought it was fine. I, don't, I wouldn't consider it one of the greatest yeah, games ever. Yeah, one of the
0: greatest games ever. And it's uh, the story is like a mutated housefly, uh, I don't know, mm-hmm. <laughs> fighting with aliens or something. And it had a very interesting, I guess to, to its credit, it had a very different and interesting type of gameplay where these different sort of elements were involved. Uh, it wasn't your straightforward, you know, just shoot the aliens and spaceships that are flying by. So Yars Revenge, just to give some perspective when we talk about E.T., it's a game, and this and that was his first game, but it took him seven months to develop the game and another five months of playtesting uh, before it finally hit the shelves in, in uh, May of 1982. And at the time, when it went on sale, it was the biggest game of all time for Atari, selling more than a million copies. And then he went on to create a game that you may have played, and the game that I loved was the adaptation of Raiders of the Lost Ark.
1: Oh, that's a great game. Right? Yeah.
0: So Warshaw created Yars Revenge, and then he created this, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, which, yeah, it's awesome. And that's another game where it seems to have pushed the limits of Atari. You know, where Adventure was amazing, you know, yeah. and it really sparked the imagination, but it seemed uh, kind of the same thing over and over again. The Screens, Raiders was all these different elements.
1: Yeah, they took, like, Pitfall and turned it into, like, an adventure game, basically.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's like a multi-level Pitfall. Mm-hmm. And you could see the hints of E.T., which i will later create, because part of the Raiders thing was finding pieces of things and then bringing them somewhere and, you know, doing that s- sort of thing. So he he goes on to create Raiders of the Lost Ark, and again, spends 10 months developing it, releases it in November of 82 million dollar or million copies are sold again, huge game. So he, he gets a reputation for being like the Midas of game designers because of his success. And it's reported that, um, he, he then was receiving, a uh, million dollars a year. So he went from, you know, taking this uh, pay cut at, from Hewlett Packard to being a, you know, a celebrity mm-hmm. being hounded by autographs from folks who would recognize him. I don't, I don't even know if that in that era, they, I don't think they still gave credit to people who wrote the games. Isn't that the, the whole deal with Adventure? Right. Yeah. What, uh, yeah, Warrenet, sorry, yeah. Rob, Robinette. Warren Robinette. Warren Robinette's hiding his name in uh, Adventure because no one else would give him credit. Yeah, Atari wouldn't. But um, so they realized after the Raiders' success that, hey, we're doing this all wrong. <laughs> Pac-Man porting all these games, that's fine. You know, uh, Actually, Pac-Man was ported and you know didn't do too well. It's a really terrible port. But Space Invaders, all those games... That's great, but you know what we really should do is license, get licensing for for rights to things like movies. Yeah, the, makes perfect sense. It could be huge. So um, what they did is they went after another uh, smash uh, Spielberg movie, ET. Makes sense, right? You think it's how could you lose? So um, the, the movie itself, you know, which had released in, in June of 1982, had made over 300 million dollars at the time. It was the highest. Uh, grossing film the industry had ever seen meanwhile, while that's happening, Atari is in this uh, you know, bidding war and Atari at this point had been purchased by Warner Communications, who also owned Warner the you know, film production. They wanted to expand their uh, you know diversify they wanted to diversify so they Warners in negotiations trying to get the rights for Spielberg's ET and they wound up getting them for what's reported as 20 to 25 million dollars, which would be about 50 million bucks today. Uh, and they get the rights. So then Warshaw Warshaw rather gets a call that he has a he gets a call on a Tuesday that on Thursday he's gonna have a leader jet waiting for him at the San Jose International Airport. They're gonna fly him to Burbank to meet Spielberg to pitch his idea for the E. T. game. So he's got thirty six hours to come up with an idea for the game. To, to pitch the then most important film director of all time. Yeah. So, how do you think that meeting actually went? Well, he, he says is he told Spielberg his idea, which we know the game. Uh, you were just playing it a few moments ago, and Spielberg said, "Can't you make it more like Pac-Man?" <laughs> <laughs> so I think it was more. It was a little too complicated, maybe for Spielberg's sensibilities.
1: But games were simple in that in those days. Yeah, it's a pretty simple game. Yeah. And had it not been on expert mode, I probably could have got a a lot more candy. (laughs) He would have gotten a piece, maybe. (laughs) Well, I kept getting the pieces, but the agent kept taking them from me. Oh, that's what was going on. Okay, yeah.
0: Well, so, so eventually Spielberg agrees to his design, which is more like Raiders, where you have to walk around, find pieces, and he was attempting to make it, you know, emulating the sort of experience of the game. Like with Raiders, you know,
1: there's only limited things you could do within the technology, but he was trying to make it more like the the, the movies. So I imagine the meeting went like this at one point. He goes, look, man, and he opens the bag of Reese's Pieces, <laughs> and just throws them across the floor and goes, I'm E.T., you try and catch me before I get the candies. You would be great at a pitch meeting. That's awesome. <laughs>
0: yeah, because you get that visceral experience of what the... Oh, no, but then someone has to shove Spielberg into a pit.
1: Yeah. Well, no, the, uh, he has to shove him in a pit. Oh, he's the guy? Okay. Yeah, he get, he's going to be E.T. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so Spielberg then... Spielberg gets to be the agent with the mysterious walkie-talkie all of a sudden. I see. Yeah. Oh, right. Not a gun. Yeah. Yes. Although, yeah, I guess Spielberg then wouldn't have appreciated
0: the frustration that his game, that the the, the game created, uh, ultimately created, would, would cause. <laughs> But Spielberg ultimately approves it, and, and they want to have it out for the Christmas season. But it has to be done by September. Now, they're talking in uh, July. So he has five weeks. He has to be done by September 1st. He has five weeks to get it done. Now, remember I told you he spent other games, seven months, nine yeah. months, five months play testing. Yep, Talking a year in development. Um, so usually you've got at least six months of developing it plus playtesting for a few months. He had five weeks. So uh, Walsh says he spent, he thinks, 500 hours over this time developing the game, working 14-hour days. So finally the game comes out uh, Christmas time in December. Some 5 million copies of the cartridges are shipped across America. Uh, and Atari thinks it's going to be you know, the best-selling game of all time. you got the greatest movie of all time. They mm-hmm. just had Raiders. They've got Yars' Revenge. So you know, it's a can't-lose proposition. Very quickly, as kids are excited and opening these presents under the trees, they start playing them. <laughs> and they realize very quickly what you saw, but you're an expert. And I guess with, you know, with a tremendous amount of patience in the 80s, more yeah. so than you probably have now, <laughs> I would guess. They start getting frustrated really quickly uh, about uh, falling into these pits.
1: Yeah. If you don't know how to get out of the pit, you just shut the game off because you're done. Yeah. You're, you can't do anything.
0: And that was probably the most rage, quitty type thing you did in the 80s, right? I mean, now you see kids on, the, on YouTube smashing their Xboxes. And, yeah. I mean, my, my, my parents probably would have killed me if I <laughs> pulled out E.T. and <laughs> smashed it with a hammer or something. Yeah. But they were probably also made in a much more durable way. They weren't CDs you could just snap in half.
1: Oh, yeah, you just blow on them and they work again. <laughs>
0: right. It didn't take a lot to resurrect them. So uh, the, the problem with this, as Warshaw describes it, was he said the game disoriented
1: the players. Yeah, I'm pretty sure with almost 100% accuracy that we finished that game as kids. Well, again, you were very patient. I remember being patient, too, but also being
0: pretty frustrated. So when the game came out in December of 1982, it was... You want to take a guess how
1: much it cost? Full price? Full price? Yeah. I'm gonna, 1982. Yeah. I'm going to go with ooh, $17.95. Wow. That would have been a discount. It was
0: $38. Holy moly. Uh, but very quickly, by March of the following year, it's on sale for $20. Mm-hmm. And then in April, a month later, 8 bucks. Nice. Yeah, so... Now, unfortunately for Atari and Warshaw, I guess particularly for Warshaw, the flop of E.T. Uh, coincided with the video game crash of 1983. Mm-hmm. Uh, so folks blame E.T. for creating the crash, but in reality, we had a market that was flooded with a lot of video games from third-party developers with no quality control. So, you know, I guess Atari was attempting to create good games. It seems like we had a bunch of, you know, independent companies that were just racing to market uh, and creating a lot of stuff that just saturated the market, and so good stuff couldn't rise up, up, up and uh, consumers were getting burned because you'd yeah. buy these games, and you know a lot of them would be garbage. Yep. So you had that, and then you also had uh, you know some other consoles coming in into uh, to compete. You know, your Coleco Vision and. Uh, television so the the market was saturated with consoles and video games and so as a result uh, and by the end of 1983 atari reported losses of 536 million dollars
1: yeah that's a company killer right there yeah
0: during the 70s they were a two billion dollar company and at this time they were uh, roughly a hundred million dollars atari i thought this was really interesting warner communications i told you owned atari they wind up selling the ailing company for a certain amount of money in cash and $240 million in stock. Can you guess how much cash Atari, the company, was sold for? I'm gonna guess one dollar. Oh, that's like price is right rules. I yeah. guess you didn't go over, so I you went. I didn't win. go
1: over, so I went. Because it was
0: fifty bucks. Ah, it's close. So less money than those sealed cartridges that we talked <laughs> about earlier selling today, you could buy Atari. So at some point, you know, uh, during the fall of nineteen eighty three, it's true. Uh, Atari did load load up 20 truckloads of video games, including thousands of unsold ETs, which were sent back to them from the stores that couldn't sell them, and they dumped them in a landfill in Alamogordo, New Mexico, um, hoping that it would be forgotten. Now, at the time, I found an article that said that um, kids in the area, and this is a small town of 25,000 folks, saw Atari, which had an office, I think, in Santa Fe, which is like 90 miles uh, away from Alamogordo, showing up with trucks and trucks of video games. I mean, if you were a kid in that area, what would you do? I'd be in the dump, digging. That's what happened. So people were reporting to the police, kids are showing up with you know at stores <laughs> trying to sell these filthy copies of these various video games. <laughs> and the police and the others were thinking they were stolen, which I guess in a sense they were stolen, but not in the, not in the way that um, they thought. They realized they were getting mad at this landfill. Uh, anyway, when they get done with the 20 truckloads they've cemented over so that and they put security guards nobody's able to get them any anymore if you want to see a really cool story that ends within a very climactic ending uh, i guess i spoiled it already watch the documentary atari game over which uh, ernest klein who wrote uh, ready player one does a cool documentary about this which ends with them finding the cartridges and they wind up finding it about ultimately about 1300 ets and they're sold for numerous prices uh, uh some selling for as, as much as $1500. Yeah, that's
1: a that's a great documentary right there.
0: So, um, Warshaw after this uh, crash uh sought uh career in a completely different arenas uh, ultimately um finding his true passion as a psychotherapist. Hmm. Which is what he does today, although he's still uh he said now he's not uh, he's working on a quote more sophisticated piece of hardware, the human brain.
1: Hmm. Electroshock therapy. Yeah.
0: So, uh, you know, we talk about the crash of uh, the video games in, in 83, and I hope we understand now that Warshaw and E.T. were not uh, responsible for that. It was just a symptom of what was what was happening. But what's interesting is, just like the 1980s, right, by the end of the decade, we have the opposite happen, where out of the ashes of the, the, the dying phoenix that was the Atari VCS, ultimately the 2600, you have the rise of the Nintendo Entertainment System. And what I learned was, is that, and that comes out in 87, 88, depending on where you are in the world. Uh, in Japan, it was known as the Nintendo Famicom system. In Japan, the system, the Famicom was, you know, brightly colored and clearly a video game system. But what Nintendo learned was, by the was because of the crash of video games in the early 80s, they marketed it in America differently. We get these gray, dull consoles, mm-hmm. um, you know, these cubes, essentially, these boxes, if you remember you put the cartridge inside it you close a door so you don't even see there's a game in it yep the word game is like downplayed and subtle so out of what happened earlier in the 80s with Atari and the other systems uh, Nintendo learns hey let's just you know we're not gonna we're gonna ease this in they also uh, created the uh, a system for for uh, certifying third-party games so if you wanted your game to be uh, official certified get that that gold sticker on it which I think that cartridge we talked about earlier was had that sticker on it that sold at auction you had to get it through nintendo so they had quality control over even third-party games and as a result of them learning from this failure earlier in the decade nintendo you know i don't have to tell you a huge success oh yeah so in spite of or perhaps you know due to uh, what happened uh, nintendo was able to uh, save video games in the 1980s which then led to other systems uh, as well and that's that and uh, for even more detailed information about this uh, story, check out uh, the article, The Man Who Made the Worst Video Game in History by Zachary Crockett, over uh, at hustle.co. And in a moment, we'll be right back with our guest, retro game enthusiast and host of Tristabytes, Bex. Our guest today is a valuable source of geeky goodness. On YouTube, she just began her fifth year as host of Tristabytes, where she discusses comics, movies, TV, and video games, often traveling as far as Japan to provide us with the nerdy information we desperately crave. And each week, she puts her pride on the line on Twitch, where you can watch her live as she plays classic video games with input from the audience. YouTuber, streamer, interviewer, you can learn more about her on YouTube, Twitch, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for Trista Bites. Please welcome to the show, geeky connoisseur and retro game aficionado, Bex. Hey, Bex, how are you doing?
2: Hey, how are you doing? Uh, Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Uh, (laughs) Time zones, how are you?
0: You know, you remind me, I think this is right, right? Bex is our first international guest. I believe that's correct, yes. Right, so folks know we're located in the United States. Uh, Do you mind saying where you are, Bex?
2: I'm in London, in England.
0: Okay, so yeah, wow. So not only can we talk about 19, well, you know, so our show, as you know, know, because you're a huge fan. Just kidding. You will be, maybe, at some point. But, you know, Covers uh, is defending vigorously the 1980s and why it's the best decade for all things, uh, pop culture-wise. But we've never gotten that perspective as to whether it holds up beyond the United States. Wow, that just occurred to me. Hmm. Yeah,
2: I'm honored and terrified by the level of responsibility (laughs) I have just now realized is being placed upon my
0: shoulders. (laughs) Now, you're lucky that most Americans, and I will include myself in this, Things get vague, you know, once you leave the United States, and I try to be uh, an informed person, but things start getting blurry for me, you know, even uh, the relationship of, all right, you got your, you know, your England, you got your United Kingdom, uh, you got something called Great Britain, Yeah, and and I didn't expect you to do a geography or social studies lesson here, but um, you're representing some portion of those, so yeah, no pressure.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's fine. We'll just go for the widest <laughs> proportion because that's the, the <laughs> yes. most amount of pressure. The <laughs>
0: entire UK. Okay, very good. So um, I wanted to talk today because, you know, folks know that you love so many things that are retro, uh, for lack of a better word, and um, we would like to get uh, as help to help make our sort of, you know, case for how the, the endurance of things from the past, uh, how they endure in our society today. I thought it'd be very useful to talk to you because you know about so many of these things and are so uh, so clearly, you know, fond of them. Um so just taking a, a step back uh do you mind saying what what would you consider your era growing up we we consider ourselves 80s kids Ray and I what would you consider your era
2: Yeah well I'm an, I'm an 80s kid I was born in 82 um so 80s and 90s were kind of a nice
0: blur of awesome you know uh, hm this is another good mm-hmm. reason we have uh, this is just you know uh, uh serendipitous that you were an 80s slash 90s kid because for me i feel like after the 80s as you know the premise of our show things get kind of more squishy and vague as to uh i don't know what they've uh, the achievements of a particular decade or standouts 80s for us sort of leaps out with sort of you know if i can sort of feel and see the colors and the sounds and the energy 90s 90s still a little bit and as you start getting towards today it's like i I don't know what kids are going to be proud of in the future you know having grown up in the 2020s um do do you identify with one more than the other or is it just your youth
2: um yeah it's just all of my youth in general really um i think that they're sort of when talking about cartoons and things yeah the 90s had some amazing cartoons sure so, you know, that's when our Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or yes. Hero Turtles, as we have right. them over here, oh. as, I, as I do like to, to to wind people in the States up about. Yes, yeah, so we have <laughs> Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles yes. because apparently Ninja sounded too aggressive. <laughs> in mind, a- you know, Turtles with swords is fine, hmm. but nunchucks, no. Swords, pointy, stabby <laughs> swords are okay, but they, they took all the nunchucks out. It's really, really bizarre.
0: That's interesting because I tend to think of, you know, I watch a lot of BBC programming and uh, mostly the comedies. But it, it's it always is surprising to me how uh, more open they are as far as the censorship versus the United States, it seems.
2: Yeah, it was just turtles. Just something about turtles <laughs> being ninjas. Other things had ninjas. We had samurai pizza cats, you know, which is a, a, a redubbed Japanese import, and that, that they were ninjas. That right. was fine, huh. just with turtles. And um, I was showing recently on a, on a live stream my Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles collector's cards, the one type you used to get with, like, a you know, a card with every piece of bubblegum oh, kind sure. of thing. And um, they say Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles on, otherwise i suspect they're the same as the ones used guide heads mm-hmm. and they even try and use the abbreviation t <laughs> <laughs> um, must be confusing uh, ht oh. no one uses that
0: oh i see it didn't it, catch you don't,
2: no not really um and i think quite quickly yeah because by the, the second time they made a cartoon series i think they'd put the ninja back in and realize that maybe if you're running around with swords as
1: like (laughs) killer
2: animals with like killer ooze and stuff like that that yeah the word ninja maybe wasn't the most violent thing going on
0: so it seems like we've learned so far what we learned about the united kingdom and this applies to everyone that lives there they're afraid of turtles and ninjas yeah well no well, well yeah you're right samurais are fine and cats are fine just not ninjas yeah don't arm the turtles yeah. Maybe they're particularly scary because they already come with that shell, so it might be, might be hard to take down. <laughs> Possibly.
2: We did have a terrapin issue after the the, the (laughs) Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles. Because people kept, I don't know if this happened out in the States as well, but kids kept asking for terrapins for pets, but you can't handle them. They're really, like, they they basically have slight toxicity of their, um, like, on their skin. You can't handle them. They're not really pets at all. They bite you when they lock their jaws. They do not let go. And um, we did have issues with people trying to get rid of said terrapins into local water supplies. Oh, my goodness.
1: We have that Uh, with Alex. Alligators here, yes.
2: Okay, well, I will take terrapins over alligators. <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're raised right.
0: In the 80s, we had the you know alligators and the stories, the urban legends that people would flush them down a toilet to get rid of them, and then of course they would grow to an enormous size in various sewer systems around the country, and then well, it, terrorize. It, yeah, the it's also
1: part of the the legend of what uh, spawned the Ninja Turtles. Well, okay, it's, it's one of the yeah, many we, things. What well, we yeah, say, we talked about yeah. how it's a it was a parody of
0: uh, Daredevil. Um, so, Bex, I do notice that you know talking about the '80s, in particular that your, your '80s cred runs deep. You know, I know you have a varied interest in different uh, things of the 1980s: video games, cartoons, as you mentioned, television films. Um, is there something? And also, you know, again, I, and I and I know this from looking at other interviews and things you've done. That you know, you have a love of William Gibson and Gary Newman and Tim Burton and My Little Pony. So it's varied. Um, is there something about the '80s that you? connected with beyond the nostalgia? Um, Or was it just, you know, simply that you grew up during that time? And so it's those items of pop culture, the closest to you?
2: There definitely there is an element of, of that and there is always an element that your love of something will be completely rose tinted by the fact you grew up with it yeah. um, and I think that's that's true everyone you, you can't be objective when it comes to your own childhood I don't even pretend to be um, <laughs> I, I, pretend. I've had plenty of dis- discussions with people where they're like how is your favourite Mega Drive the Mark 2 <laughs> or the Sega Genesis yes. as you called it the Sega Genesis Mark 2 how right. is that your favourite one the Mark 1 was superior the audio." (laughs) quality was superior had a set for headphones jacket and i'm just like because that's the one i bought (laughs) (laughs) right that's it that's the reason that's my favorite one like i i I, you know if i wanted to argue that objectively Mm because i'm also a graphic designer i could argue that objectively but if you want to ask me my favorite one it's the mark ii because Mm. that's the one i had and that's the one i still have i still have my mega my my genesis mark ii boxed complete (laughs) the one i bought as a child um so That's amazing. it's, it's going to be the one I connect with more. Um, and I always used to joke that the, you know, the, the, the Mark one was just trying badly to be a record player and failed. And, <laughs> and the Mark two was the Ferrari edition, yes. you know, um, because it looked more futuristic and it took up slightly less space. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't really try and pretend I'm completely objective with these things. There are some things I can say fairly objectively, like Total Recall, the original one is amazing. The remake, not so much. Yep. But, <laughs> um, there, there's various stuff where I just go with it. Yeah, this is nostalgia.
1: <laughs> I've found that as long as you say the word objectively during the sentence, <laughs> that it just is implied that you're objective what Ray is saying is we lie. Uh, we're still
0: pretending on our show that we can be objective.
2: Economical with the truth. Uh,
0: (laughs) Yes. From a certain point of view, it's true. Um, (laughs) But honestly, and we've done shows on this, one of our very first shows, I think, maybe our very first show, was talking about how, the premise for me of our show is that, yes, nostalgia plays a big role in people's love of things, but I think as a happy coincidence for us, we grew up in a decade that also produced a lot of really good pop culture. It was some kind of weird you know, mix of the economics, the politics, that you know birthed all these amazing different uh, you know elements of pop culture in, in various genres music movies television video games that I don't know we had seen before or had seen since you know decades after I think benefited from the advances in the 80s um, so I agree with you nostalgia plays a big role I think there's an objective argument to be made it's a little harder to make though but um, uh, I take your point. Um, mm,
2: I've also just realized that Turtles came out in 87, but never mind. That's the power of Google, I, people.
0: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, when you bring up something from the 80s and you say it's your favorite, we just let you go. We yeah,
1: don't... I just assumed it didn't hit your shores until oh. the 90s is why you yeah. said that.
2: Oh. I thought it, I thought it was 1990. But maybe, yeah, yeah maybe the, the 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 power of Google I'm looking at is yeah. the power of the original release. Yeah, I think
0: they. Um, yeah, 80s. there were some. I think there was. A, was there a tweak in the 90s where they redid it? Um, think oh, twe- there's been so many yeah. versions
2: of Turtles, yeah. and they're still they're still making them, and I'm still mm-hmm. watching them, so that's fine by me. <laughs> so, um, so, so, yeah, they, they keep remaking stuff at the moment, and it's. Uh, I, I I again I try and look at those things objectively and look at remakes of things from the 80s objectively, but that's quite difficult.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, yeah, you're very honest like that. So you talked about how you have your first system still, but uh, I know you do, you know, unboxing videos where you get other retro systems and other retro items. Um, and are those necessarily from your childhood? Or is there something else to seeking out uh, these old uh, other vintage, uh, you know, objects?
2: I think for me, there's things from my own childhood, um, which I want to relive or which I still play. Like the Mega Drive uh, Genesis was the first one I ever owned myself, but um, I was playing a lot of systems before then, obviously. Um, but there was also so many things I did not get to play as a kid. Right. I think that was the thing. If we, if we had a, If we had a console, it took me a year and a half, I think, to save up to get my Genesis. Right. Yeah. Um, that was my birthday money, my Christmas money, my pocket <laughs> money, everything <laughs> yes. to, to, to get that. Um, thanks grandma. And, yeah. um, it, it took, it took me yeah at least a year and a half to save up that money in order to, in order to buy that. Um, and it was very precious, but equally there were so many things I desperately wanted to play mm-hmm. and I didn't have the opportunity to. I was quite fortunate that I grew up on, um, a council estate, so there was quite a lot of kids um living in close proximity to me and between us yep. we had a lot of games <laughs> um and then the same some of the kids at school i knew they had systems and i wanted to play everything but we were not in a massively high income area so there were still right. all these things which i couldn't play so now as an adult right I can play those things. <laughs> I can get hold of those computers and those consoles that I didn't have access to, or I could only play when I borrowed them. So I'm kind of like, no, see, I'm going to have all of those things I coveted in uh, magazines as a child.
0: Uh, <laughs> Ray and I were talking earlier, though, just like yourself. Um, it, so I had the Odyssey system was our first system. I don't know how we got it, because I think it came out in like 70 or something like that, the first one. I, we had it probably in 74 five or so 76 i was born in 71 i remember being like five or so years old i don't know how we got it maybe it was used we didn't have a lot of money we were poor but my dad was into technology Um, and then we had the atari 2600 later in the decade and that was the only system we ever had i think that's the only system my two family had to play nintendo it was at a you know a family member's house ray mentioned he was playing atari at his grandmother's house
1: Mm -hmm. well we also had it at home but we had we also had one there because
0: oh you were oh never mind you were rich we're, we're sharing yeah. stories about the struggles of our youth ray yeah yeah
2: uh, <laughs> we we're, we're bonding
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Rich, i would not say yeah i know so is there a system that you that you uh something that you did get you know do you coveted from your youth you finally got it as an adult and it didn't meet up to your expectations
2: um
0: that didn't meet up to them yeah ooh, I flipped it on you
2: ooh i i, I think it's more just that The games are so much harder than I remember. (laughs) (laughs) Like, um, now I have a C64. um, And I played on one of those a little bit as a kid, but it wasn't mine. And sort of actually going now, I can sit and play these games all the way through. Yes. And going like, I've died fifty times, and this is the first. <laughs> and I level. can't
0: save. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> God damn it! Um, so I think that's the, the disappointment is more in myself <laughs> 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 because I don't, I don't know if the games have magically got harder, if yep. my memories are somewhat warped, <laughs> or if I was just significantly better at these things. Yes. When I was younger. Um. But that's that's definitely was quite a. A sort of like a difficult pill to swallow was kind of like, yeah, this, th- these, these games are so much harder than I remember. Um, I was playing Comic Zone, hmm. uh, which is a Meg Drive Genesis game a little while ago. I, I, just, I just kept dying on the first level. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, I, I try to get my kids into some of the older systems because we've got a few vintage, you know, retro systems here. And the ones you can't save on, they're like, yeah, no, not playing this. And I was like, you know, this, there might be a life lesson here, you know, because I don't know that li- this is me just, you know, making up philosophy while playing, trying to sound like, you know, a good father at the time. Li- life doesn't have save points. Life doesn't have checkpoints.
2: Yeah, but you don't go back to being like five years old if you mess up at 10 years old either. <laughs> when, when you've That's got true. sort of like 45 minutes into, into into a platform game, you go back to the start. Yes we don't get to do do overs like that. You know, you cannot mm. redo the level of life. You know, I would like to redo a lot of levels of mine uh, <laughs> and be able to like speed run some parts. That would be awesome. Um, so I, I think I'm going to immediately say your metaphor doesn't work. Sorry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Look, I said, you know, in quotes, <laughs> I was making air quotes at the time. Good father. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, so. Uh, is there Now, the other, I guess, side of that coin or that question is, is there something you still would love to have, but you haven't either tracked it down or you've tracked it down, but the price is ex- astronomical because, you know, Ray and I were talking about how the vintage, there was an article in the New York Times that just came out, how, you know, vintage games still sealed or, you know, the prices are through the roof. Is there something you still would love to have?
2: So many things. Um, oh. that's, that's, a, <laughs> that, that's a difficult question. I, um, I grew up very much on Sega. Um mm-hmm. over in Europe, um Sega did a lot better than they did compared to over in the States. Okay. So here Sega Nintendo was kind of fifty fifty, people who had the Master system versus the NES or the you know, the the Genesis right. versus the the SNES and things like that, or the Super Nintendo, I forget how the correct way to say
0: it. Any <laughs> uh, on say, I guess.
2: And yeah, it was pretty much 50-50 here, and I fell more onto the, the Sega side of things. Because mm. it was cooler, you know? Yes. Why be a plumber when you can be <laughs> a really fast hedgehog? It's just This is probably yes. why I started my life with some unrealistic life expectations. At least if you want to be a plumber, that, that's a career that can go places. Um, although Mario was also a doctor and uh, everything yeah. else. Yes, Clearly. he's the
0: Barbie of video games, yeah.
2: Yeah, I I am very suspicious how creative his accounting must have been.
0: (laughs) but (laughs) It was all under the table.
2: (laughs) I I think so. And a lot of kidnapping. It's very, very strange. (laughs) (laughs) But I definitely coveted various other Sega things that I still have never owned and, in fact, never played. So the Sega, the the Mega Drive, the Genesis, it had the Mega CD Mm -hmm. add-on. Right. And I've mm-hmm. never played one of those, and I used to look at those in in catalogues all the time. And the same with the 32x, um, mm. which obviously bombed horrifically everywhere. Um, yep. And I desperately wanted both of those, and I have still never even played on either of them, which is ridiculous, considering how much time I spend at retro gaming events. Right. I haven't actually managed to get the time to sit down mm-hmm. and, and play on one of those, uh, as I loved them. They, they were terrible, <laughs> but but I, I, I still I still want them. Um, do, do
0: you ever try, or have you ever tried those games even on an emulator?
2: No, I want to play them on Original
0: Hardware. Yes, of course, sure. Have that <laughs> controller in your hand, and yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, I will play some things on emulation i've got various steam classics collections um Mm. for streaming purposes it's just a lot easier um and it means i have access to a much much wider library and especially when i want to stream some of the old atari classics and things like that some things that you know maybe are old enough that they only came out on cassettes right um i wouldn't necessarily want to be streaming original hardware for that or putting extra wear and tear on those items so i do emulation for that but Kind of the first time I ever played some of these things. Like it's it's the fact you're kind of like here's a ridiculous CD player that will slot into the side of my console, <laughs> and here's a mushroom type thing. God <laughs> knows who the hell designed that. Same person that did the the Master System two design, yes. obviously. <laughs> yeah. That just it just goes at the top for just just right. you know, <laughs> and then it looks horrific. Um. So there's there's definitely those are on my list of things. But I yeah I just. I, I love a lot of these systems and um, I have a lot of nostalgia just for sort of looking at them in, in, in what we, ha- we have a, a book called the book of dreams, the Argos catalog, which is the same company as Walmart. And mm-hmm. um, just I used to just look at these things, look at pictures of these things. <laughs> For a mm-hmm. long time. So the physicality of the hardware is also very much um, a draw, the appeal for me to like, actually hold these things and be like, this is as badly designed as I thought it was. <laughs> Quite
0: wrong. Yeah, I love how you, you criticize them at the same time you covet them. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes. It's, it's, um, it, it, it's, it's a constant struggle. I wake we, up at night screaming here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we had uh, the Sears Wish Book when we were kids, that we would do the same thing with all the Star Wars toys. Wanted so many of them. Got some of them. Um, what is it? So you're, you know, again, as I mentioned, you're, you know, you mentioned, uh, being into, uh, retro movies and television shows, et cetera, but it seems like obviously since you, it seems like your true passion, I suppose, is, is video games. How is it that I suppose you connect with video games more so than these, or seem to at least, uh, these other media?
2: Um, I connect to all of them equally, to be honest. Um, yeah. I, <laughs> I, I think I, I enjoy media in, in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that there's. That I, if you could set me off on for three hours talking just about Transformers or Thundercats, or I could talk for so many hours about how much I love <laughs> the Acorn Electron, uh, which is another version of the BBC Micro, the Acorn mm-hmm. Electron makes me ridiculously happy one of the first computers i ever used and um i still have a massive love affair with those in fact i went to a computing museum a little while ago spent an hour looking for one and then just took videos of me pointing at it smiling like an idiot <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah i i'd say i'm sort of evenly in love
0: with all of these things <laughs> Is it just more of a, a practical matter that you had to pick some some of your loves or you, you wanted an outlet for one of your loves and it's it's maybe the most practical to do video games or focus on video games
2: yeah and it's a good thing that you can share with other people and for things right. like the Twitch streaming it's nice it's an interactive experience where you can let chat try and help you with what you're playing and they remember playing it as well. And it's uh, it's just such an, an amazing conversation that you can have with people. And um, yeah, I enjoy, it. I let people just basically come and backseat game what I'm doing. Right. Uh-huh. and um, right. we, d- we enjoy it as a collective group and then we still die.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you seem to be drawn to more of the uh, RPG games.
2: I do have a massive love for RPGs. Yeah, um, I, I I think the um, the Fantasy Star series mm-hmm. was one of the things that really drew me into it, mm-hmm. and I still still love that series. We ignore the, the the Dreamcast Fantasy Star Online. That one that's that doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the original Fantasy Star games. They, they were just so amazing. And I'd never seen anything like that before. They, they are literally the reason why I have coloured hair. <laughs> that that's right? how much of a, an influence <laughs> these things had on me. And a, so, a, a character in Chrono Trigger had piercings at the top of their ear. And that's why
0: i got piercings. <laughs> Done. <laughs> it, it,
2: it was a direct correlation between these things. Um, I was kind of like, you can you can have bright purple hair. <laughs> that's,
0: that's the, the thing. thing yeah. I don't have to be a plumber and I can have coloured hair.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So from like the age of sort of seven I was pestering uh-huh. to be allowed to have purple hair, and my mom just basically said, "When you're 16, you can bleach your hair." So that's what <laughs> I did crazy. my 16th birthday. <laughs> so, and that's kind of how that worked. <laughs>
0: it seems like you have like, have had amazingly or incredible parents that have been so supportive of your love of gaming as a child, and you know, and even your uh, decision on fashion. Let's say, do they continue to support your uh, your career now in in, uh, in uh, representing gaming online?
2: Yeah, my my mother was just kind of like, if you enjoy this, that's fine. Um, she never really had any opinion or judgment on these things. Um, sometimes I think maybe she didn't look quite close enough because <laughs> I, I had a copy of Mortal Kombat. I probably shouldn't have had that copy of yes. Mortal Kombat. Um, and I had it on a Sega system, which meant it had blood. Uh-huh. It was only oh. censored on the uh, Nintendo system. So mm. that game was more violent over here than it, than it was for mm. you guys, possibly. Um, but other than that, yeah, she just kind of encouraged me in whichever direction i i wanted to go um and i think i was just so obviously passionate about these things i was massively into drawing and art as a child as well and i would sit and draw all the characters from rpgs and all the characters from computer games endless pictures of sonic the hedgehog and things like that i'd sit and pause my games and pause the screens and draw them all and and things like that so it was a it was pretty obvious that was the direction i was going in and um yeah she didn't mind and with with the purple hair i literally came back with bright purple hair and, and she just looked at me and went, I had my hair that, that color at your age and walked out. And I was like, <laughs> oh, gee, it's a good job. I'm not trying to rebel then, isn't it?
0: <laughs> and was that the first time you had heard of that side of your mother?
2: Um, That's the first time she'd ever mentioned yeah. having purple hair when she was younger. <laughs> I was just like, well, okay, cool. I, I mean, I wasn't doing it to wind yes. her up, so it was fine. Um, but yeah, she's, she's just always been supportive, really, um, as long as I'm happy with what I'm doing right. and... Um, that's, that's really all that, all that matters to her. Um, she knows I'll, I'll work hard at whatever I choose to do.
0: Very good. So an, another thing from the eighties that seems to, you seem have been drawn to, and again, proclaiming this as the eighties is cyberpunk. You know, we had, uh, I think you had at least two big things happen in the eighties, right? You had, uh, William Gibson novels. Um, I think 84 mm-hmm. was Neuromancer. Um, you had, uh, before that you had, um, Blade Runner in 82. Um, it seems like you're drawn to that sort of world and it, It's interesting to me that as a person who's into video games, and you mentioned you're a designer, one of the tropes of cyberpunk being that, you know, artificial intelligence is going to kill us one day. um, Are we going to be okay?
2: Well, my general approach to this is that whenever I'm being recorded or anything that's going to be in any kind of public forum is to say, I'm on the side of the singularity. (laughs) <laughs> our computer overlords are more than welcome with me
0: <laughs> that's very smart. and i
2: i i think that's a good a good move
0: <laughs> very good and uh we'll uh end it there thank you so much for your time bex it's been a pleasure
2: no problem thanks for having me on
0: all right so hey that was enlightening and uh delightful to talk to bex our first international guest uh, i mean i uh, Look, we, we learned that the 80s is not only solid here in the United States, but we're starting to learn it's, it's as what we would expect in other places around the world. Yeah, it's solid across the pond. Across the pond. He has a twinkle in his eye as he yeah. says that. I just thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> he just made it up. Soon to be on a t-shirt. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we talked about the rise and fall of video games in the 80s, and then we talked to, uh, you know, uh, Bex, who grew up in the 80s, and is keeping video games from that era alive today. But what have we
1: learned or what have we proven, if anything mm. at all? Have we proven anything? Hmm. I think we have proven yep. beyond a shadow of a doubt oh. that the 80s pop culture mm-hmm. was cool all over the world.
0: Yes, absolutely. You know what we're going to do? Let's get a map where we start putting pushpins <laughs> in where we confirm the different places around the world. Yeah. That it's been, it's as great as. Gonna need a lot of push pins. We could do that. All right. We'll talk to you next time on The Idiots.
1: See ya.